Well, we continue our study today in Acts chapter 19, continuing the uh, work through the chronology of our New Testament story. Just as a reminder, when we were last together, when I was teaching anyway, uh, we were in Acts chapter 18. And in verses 18 through 23, it talked about Paul leaving Corinth to return to Antioch, which is pretty much the end of the second missionary journey. Then, in verses 24 through 28, we had Apollos. So we had the, uh, that discussion about who was Apollos and uh, all the fun related to that. And so now we pick up in chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 1, <clears throat> it reads, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, which means he had left Ephesus and had already gone to uh, Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus which means you need to look at the map I provided you on page two of your handout. So, if you look on the very far right of the map, you see Antioch in Syria. That's Acts chapter 18, verse 23. That's where it begins. Then it says he went through the inland country of Asia, which is where you find Tarsus, which was his home, or where he was born and raised. Then Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch of Pisidia. It's always confusing when there's two cities with the same name. You've got Antioch and Antioch. Well, which Antioch? I'm just amazed that in a country like the United States, we don't have capital cities that are the same. I mean, it could very easily. We could have another Atlanta. We could have another Minneapolis. We could have another Chicago, for that matter. But we don't. Here, yeah, it kind of happened. So there's Springfields. There's Springfields. <laughs> there are other cities. But anyway, you don't have this horrific going who, where, which one, and they aren't that close like we have here. Anyway. Then it says in chapter 19, verse 1, that Paul comes to Ephesus. And I just literally in my map, I put 19, verse 1, right above the words Ephesus. I do that because we're in the midst of what's termed Paul's third missionary journey, where he travels around the, uh, the area. But it struck me when I was preparing this lesson. So this is the second time Paul has been to Ephesus. The first time was Acts chapter 18, where he was only there for a few days. Verse 22, when he had, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Verse 19 of it, chapter 18, it says, They came to Ephesus, and he left Priscilla and Aquila there, 
And he went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. And on taking leave of them, he says, I'll return if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So he was in Ephesus very briefly. Now he's back. So here's the question. Who started the church in Ephesus? It wasn't Paul. It was already there. Anybody know what the tradition is? It, John Mark. No. <laughs> <laughs> Remove the mark. John. Apostle John. Ah. Tradition has it the Apostle John came to Ephesus and established the church there. And the other fascinating part of the tradition is that he brought with him Mary, the mother of Jesus. I was digging around, you know, just one of those, my typical rabbit trails of my studies and come to find there, was, there is a cave in the upper section of Ephesus, because remember Ephesus is now abandoned. It is an abandoned city. The silt filled the, um, uh, the harbor, so it, and then the city basically died, which for archeologists has been wonderful because it just sat there cooking in the heat for thousands of years. But they found a cave that if you go into that cave, and they found this cave in the 1890s, and in this cave are all these paintings on the walls of the early church. There's paintings of Paul in Ephesus. There's paintings of Mary, mother of Jesus. There's paintings of, they think it's John, and they're, you're wondering, they're trying to figure out when, because it had been painted over, whitewashed, painted, whitewashed, painted, whitewashed. So there's these multiple layers of artwork, we would call it graffiti, uh, but artwork in, these, in this tiny little cave. And again, the tradition of the area, when they start digging into it, is that this is where John and Mary first lived. That they stayed here, not in the city, I, for, for whatever reason. Isn't that fascinating? I had no idea. So here comes my question. Did Paul and John talk to each other? Were they there at the same time? It's possible. It's never mentioned in the Bible. Nowhere. So I'm completely off the rails here for even suggesting it. However, it certainly does make you wonder time-wise because in the history of the church, they then say when Paul left Ephesus later, ended up in Rome, is executed, is that John was put in charge of the church in Ephesus as an older man, because he lived for another 30 years or so. And when he was exiled, anybody remember where John was exiled to? The island of Patmos. Look at your map. Find Ephesus. And you see that little dot above the M of Patmos? That's the island where he was exiled, literally off the coast of Ephesus. So it makes sense that there's a connection there. I had no idea. Um, someone asked the question, when, when is the earliest mention of John being in Ephesus in church history writing? And it's from Irenaeus. 
in around 180 AD, so about 100 years or so later. Irenaeus wrote about John being in Ephesus. Irenaeus was taught by Polycarp, and Tertullian wrote that Polycarp was appointed the bishop of Smyrna by John. When John was put in exile, he appointed Polycarp to take his place, and then Polycarp taught Irenaeus, who then wrote about it. Now you have my rabbit trail completely finished, and you can have a carrot. Because <laughs> we're at the end of the rabbit trail. But isn't that interesting? Setting the historical stage for the city of Ephesus, one of the most important cities in the entire ancient world. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. I think we talked about that last time. You brought it up that the Temple of Diana was there. It's an extraordinary place, but that the church had already been established there. So he comes, he shows up in Ephesus, does not meet Apollos here. Apollos was already gone. Apollos, Paul and Apollos probably did not meet until Paul went to Corinth later. Um, but even then, we don't know if they ever met. We just have the idea they didn't meet here. I don't know about you, but it was just one of those odd, odd moments in my own thinking. For all these years, I've been under that mistaken impression, and I'll admit it here to all of you, I always thought Paul started the church in Ephesus, and he was just visiting it again in this passage. No, he had not been there before. Not for any significant period of time. So he comes to Ephesus, that's verse part, first part of verse 1, and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, that's not a very standard question, but he, he asked them for whatever reason, probably had been talking to them, and they said, in, uh, no, we've never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Paul said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So a couple things here. You recall when we discussed this in chapter 18, Apollos had been preaching the baptism of John and was gently corrected by Priscilla and Aquila. We even read this passage in relation to that. But here we have an interesting dynamic in that you have those in the community, in the congregation, whatever you want to call it, who Paul picked up something, probably in conversation with them or in debates, and saying, were you baptized with the Holy Spirit? And they, they said, well, what is that? Again, it's one of those things, you know, Pastor Jim mentioned it, you know, wanting to be in heaven and find out 
some of the mysteries of scripture, this is one of them. What gave you the hint that there was a problem? Because I can tell you that it's probably unlikely that at Camelback Bible Church, in our communication with each other, that we bring up the Holy Spirit a lot. We don't. You know, it's assumed. He's, the Spirit has you know, embodied within us at the point of salvation, and we live in the Spirit of Christ and all of that. We don't you know, rattle, rattle on about it. We don't have theological discussions necessarily, and if we do, it's usually related to the spiritual gifts. So what was it? I have no idea. But something made Paul go, something is up. Well, as you can imagine, there are theological debates about these disciples. Were they Christians or not? I'm going to let you solve the centuries-old debate here this morning. No, you know you're not going to solve it. Um, because that's a big question. If they were Christians, what's going on? And if they weren't, well, then why were they called disciples? Well, Jesus had disciples before they were Christians. Even John did. I mean, in uh, Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 7, they're described as disciples of John. So that term, almost immaterial. So we have the, in fact, I've heard, I heard, I've read two very strong debates on both sides of the equation. Those were saying they weren't Christians, saying if you believe that they were, then you're believing that the Holy Spirit can come after you're already saved. You see the point? And now you're running into certain Pentecostal arguments and it gets messy. At the same time, does that mean Apollos wasn't a Christian? Because he was preaching the apostle, the baptism of John? You see where this gets messy? You also have the other issue is that you start looking at what happened. They said, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul explains it. And you have to ask this question. If they were disciples of John, and they never heard of the Holy Spirit. Luke 3.15 has John the Baptist saying, He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. They must have missed that sermon. <laughs> or they were gone that week. Or they were at, you know, Logos Kids Club. Or they were teaching in another Sunday school and they missed that lecture. That's possible. It's also possible they heard it didn't understand it, and then promptly forgot it. Now, I trust all of you. You have memorized everything that I have ever said. And you have just, Im just embedded it in your brain so I never have to repeat anything. And when I do, you just roll your eyes. Well, the problem is I'm the teacher, and I don't remember what I said. And I will repeat things going, did I say that before? That sounds very familiar. So there is... One commentator put it very succinctly. 
When they said, we have never heard of the Holy Spirit, take it at face value. They weren't trying to stir up controversy. They were being honest. They're saying, what do, you, what do you mean by that? We don't understand. Okay, granted. Then you have Paul baptizing them. In verse 6, he laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Well, again, more controversy gets stirred up in these verses. And I, I, I was talking to Lisa about this last night. And I had just written this in my notes. We cannot and should not get caught up in the chronology of salvation. Saying, you have to do this, and then this, and then this. And if you get it out of order, you're, you're, you're heretical and you're messing things up. Because this chronology has baptism, then a laying on of hands, and then the Holy Spirit. But I was under the impression that upon salvation, the Holy Spirit came into you, and then you are baptized. So which is it? Well, guess what? The New Testament has it both ways. You have in uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter is baptizes after the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, Ananias lays hands on Paul. The Holy Spirit comes upon him and then he's baptized. So if we start getting into this, you have a rigid, you know, we have a, we have a checklist in our church. And you have to follow this checklist. And if you don't follow that checklist, you're in trouble. Well, I get the reason that we want to know. For example... This goes back 30 years ago when I was running the books, Christian bookstore. I had an employee who got into these debates with me on the chronology of salvation. And I mean, there was a rigidness in his line by line thing. And I kept poking holes saying, but doesn't it say this? And he, went, ah, and he always had this answer. And it was this rather energetic debate obviously didn't change his mind he didn't change mine we just had energetic debates um, but you realize how di what's my word you can create dissension very quickly if you start debating it with um, authority and if you don't believe what I believe then you obviously are not a Christian you can't make that claim. Not in a situation like this. Anyway, that's my little side note. Did you agree the order, though, is you repent and then get baptized? Well, at least we got that part right. Right, right, right. Yeah, so we got that. baptized as an adult, even though I was Catholic baptized as a child. My mom had a hard time with that. My dad came and my mom decided not to come. To right. That baptism here. But I said, I'm, I'm reading the New Testament, and it's after you repent that you... Right. So now that I know that I'm a sinner and I've repented of that, right. I think now he need to be baptized. Right. The very beginning, that part is, but he was getting into these debates. Yeah, no, these are. When does the baptism occur? When does the Holy Spirit come in? And does then baptism provide salvation? 
because that's a whole other debate. That if you're not baptized and you're not a Christian, well, uh, now you have an entire denomination that get based in that. It's the fifth spiritual law. Yeah. Uh, so you, you can get really messed up if you're not careful with this kind of stuff. And I see Tom nodding a lot. You run into that many times in the in the field? Yeah. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which suggests this was the second time they were baptized. So this is the only time adult baptism. The only time that rebaptism is mentioned in the New Testament. You don't have another case that we have recorded where that was done. I don't know if it's to correct an error or were they actually baptized before? Or were they just teaching it? We don't know. That's another, another debate. There's probably 17 different debates just in these five verses. Just, all I can say is relax, don't worry about it. <laughs> just take it for its face value. But it is intriguing that you have the speaking in tongues and prophesying is part was with the sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon them in this case. The only other time tongues is mentioned in Acts is in Pentecost in chapter 2 and in chapter 10, verse 44, and here in chapter 19. Yeah. Just want to make an aside that comment, especially consider what the pastor said about the mass communication we have nowadays as opposed to what it was like in the olden days of the scriptures. They didn't have access to everything everybody else had access to. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of pockets, I'm guessing, of knowledge because they didn't have Instagram and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think to get our minds out of our common nowadays modern world and realize that, you know, there were people that were aware of John and learned from John, but they didn't have then they didn't have a fast forward, oh, here's the Last Supper, oh, here's the crucifixion, oh, here's the resurrection. They didn't all have all that. Yeah. So, you know, there was little, little, they had little pockets and packets of information from their personal experience. Which was part of the reason why Paul went from church to church to church to church. Mm -hmm. He was taking the message and training and bringing that consistency. Right. You also have the problem that you could have pockets in a city If you really want to get picky, people back then sometimes wouldn't travel more than five miles their entire life, maybe 10. So how many miles is it from Camelback Road to Bell Road? Any idea? We're all counting the streets, aren't we? <laughs> 5,000 to 17. How many is it? Bell Road is 17,000 17, north, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's about 10 miles. How many of us would walk to Bell Road for any reason from Camelback? Not if you can get your milk at Indian school. Not if you can get your, your work is within walking distance. I mean, you just think of how much was this? So, if your entire synagogue, your entire community was in this tiny area and no one trained them with the total extent, 
And then Paul walks in and they're going, what is the Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? And, and his response was not, what's the matter with you? Right. Didn't you get the memo? <laughs> yeah, that's so a very good point. You know what I, mean? I mean, you know, really, honestly, I mean, they didn't, they didn't know what they didn't know. He didn't criticize. He just simply said, let's fix this. Let's bring you up to speed. Even with Priscilla and Aquila, mm -hmm. with Apollos, this genius, they just simply took him aside and said, um, I don't think you have the whole story. Yeah. And they just put him, put him aright, and it was like, oh, next thing you know, Apollos is this great church leader in Corinth, the troubled church. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fun when you think about it. So, again, going back to the, the tongues and prophesying, again, it's one sign, and it's not consistently always, which there are some who would preach and teach that, you know, if you don't have tongues and prophesying, the Holy Spirit didn't come on you. And that's not the case either. One of the little trivia things, notice verse 7. How many men were there? You said 12. That's incorrect. It's about 12. I just went, oh, that's interesting. It says there's some disciples, and then it gets to the end and says, well, there are about 12 of them, a round number. Is that a baker's dozen? I mean, what is this? I don't understand. In other words, it didn't matter. It was a sizable enough group to be significant because there have been commentators who said, oh, it had to be exactly 12 to reflect the disciples of Jesus. There had to be exactly 12 to reflect the tribes of Israel. And then the other commentator would come along and says, yeah, it says about. It didn't say exactly 12. In other words, there was no symbolism. It was just, it was about 12 guys, which is a significant group. All right, I'll keep going. Verse eight. And Paul, remember he's come to Ephesus pretty much for the first time in a significant way. He had been there previously, had spoken in the synagogue. They asked him to stay longer and he said, I can't, I need to keep going. Um, and if you recall, his, one of his re our theory for his reason to keep going back in chapter 18 was that he had a vow to complete in Jerusalem. He had ended his Nazarite vow, and one of the things you had to do was go to Jerusalem and uh, go to the temple at that point. So that's what he was doing. <clears throat> but he goes to the synagogue. And I found this great chart. I have it here. Of every reference in Acts when Paul entered a city, when he went to the synagogue first. It's in chapter 9, 13, 14, 16, 17, 18, and 28. In Damascus, Jerusalem, Salamis, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus. Every time he went to the Jews first. Without fail. This was his mission the Jew first and then to the Greek. He would do what he could. And it says here, for three months, he spoke boldly. By the way, 
That phrase spoke boldly is the same phrase used to describe Apollos in chapter 18, verse 26. Same Greek phrase. He spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading. And the tense in the Greek here is a present tense, meaning it was continual. He just kept going back every day to persuade them about the kingdom of God. Now, three months is a long time. That's, if you kind of look in so far in Acts, when Paul would roll into a city, he usually didn't last in the synagogue for three months before controversy blew up and other things got, but three months is a long time in the experience. However, verse nine, it didn't last. Now the ESV has an interesting translation here, but we'll, I'll enlighten a little bit behind some of the words here. Verse nine, but when some became stubborn and continued in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew for them from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. In the Greek, the word stubborn is actually the word hardened. Not quite sure why the ESV uses the word stubborn here. It's, it literally means hardened. Uh, it's the Greek word skleros, S-K-L-E-R-O-S, skleros, to make dry and then hard. Scleruno is a medical term coined by Hippocrates for hardening. You have all heard of arteriosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries. That's the word. So if you think about these people, they, they just started getting stiff and hard and unyielding. And then they continued in their unbelief. An alternative Greek translation would be, they were hardened and disobedient. It's interesting, Hebrews picks up on the word hardened in chapter three of Hebrews. Chapter three of Hebrews verses 13 to 15 reads, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be sclero, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ. Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm in the end, as it is said in Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not scleros, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion. This idea of the hardening of the heart, if my memory serves correct in the list I saw, in the Old Testament, Hebrew, translated into Greek, the word skleros is what was used to describe Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Same word. Speaking evil of the way, Another interesting thing, I mean, 
he, Luke, is the only one to use this term, this shortcut, this uh, nickname of Christianity. It was called the way. And in, I'll just read the verses, Acts chapter 9. If he found any belonging to the way, both men, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts 19 here, speaking evil of the way before the people. Acts 19, 23, about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Acts 22, I persecuted this way to death. That's Paul's words. Acts 24, 14, but this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything in accordance with the law. Acts 24, 22, in his testimony, Paul says, but Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the commander, come down, I'll decide your case. This was, that's probably why the, uh, the Living Bible was called The Way when they published it back in the 60s. This, and also, where would it come from? I am the, the truth and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who knows? But this is uh, an obvious term that was starting to be used. It's interesting that it lost its flavor. Um, it kind of went away. Um, it just we don't talk about it that way unless you happen to go to the church on the way or you're on the way to church ha um, but there we don't call it that we call it Christianity and I like it better because it has the word Christ in it but, but uh, George Lucas picked up on it yeah. so this is the yeah that's true <laughs> yes and of course, that's, that's the other Bible. <laughs> um, so it says, Paul withdrew from that synagogue, took the disciples with him, probably about 12, no, I'm kidding, whoever they were, <laughs> reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. We have no idea whether Tyrannus is the name of a person or it's the name of the hall. In many translations, the word hall is translated as school because the Greek word there is spelled S-C-H-O-L-E, skola, for school, a place of instruction. So it's possible that the tyrannous school could have been a place that was used to instruct people. Now it's very intriguing. One of these little side notes of, of history. In one early, er, one early manuscript, the Greek manuscript adds words after the word tyrannous. You might even see it in the margin of your Bible if you have one that has the margin notes. It says that in, he reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus from the fifth to the tenth hour. 
and that's 11 o'clock to 4 o'clock. So in other words, Paul went to his tent making shop and he worked in the morning. Then he went to the school of Tyrannus and spoke for five hours and then went back to work. Possible. And yeah. he has a lecture hall as the translation. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're trying to explain what mm -hmm. is understood that what this is. Um, the idea 11 to 4 is an odd time frame. So who would be there? And so you have to start looking at culture. In Spain, it's called a what? Siesta. The siesta. And the siesta is from 2 to 5, approximately, depending on where it is. It's a great tradition. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> in France, I understand that there is, or at least was, a tradition like that. Well, especially with the meals from 12 to 2, you can't. You can't get any work done because lunchtime is two hours. You can get killed in front of the police station and they'd be on break. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and they come out to help you. you know? Was, is there a name for it? Do they just. La siesta. So it's a siesta. It's a siesta, yeah. So Interesting. It's the meal with the rest time. Interesting. And then apparently in Greece, they still have a two to five window. And I remember that when, goodness, in 1979, visiting there as a tourist. And we're in the marketplace and suddenly doors started closing and we're going, what's happening? It's two o'clock. And this, they're, they're not locking themselves in, they're locking it behind them and they're leaving. And they're going, hey, you know, brother, hey, Joe, and they all sit in the sandwich shop. And we're going, but we want to buy trickets. <laughs> There's, nothing was open. You have to make it 30 or 18 years old. I know, but to me, it was shocking. I said, you know, what's wrong with you people? You know, we... Steve, I remember a National Geographic magazine from the 70s in Greece uh -huh. where the people did that. And they actually go home, and many of them put their pajamas on and go back to bed. Oh, I actually read a note saying that there is a even embedded in that in Greece is an hour-long nap. Okay. Embedded? No pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> I got it. I married that. <laughs> My ESP note says that's the, the hottest part of the day. So that's what people Exactly. That's that's what they're mentioning. It, but this is eleven to four. That's a long time. But it does bring into this concept of, oh, well, they're done with their work, and now let's go over to the lecture hall and let's debate. And it doesn't necessarily, unless I'm misreading something, doesn't mean it's the same group. Correct. You could have had a doesn't have to be. Sure. Group that's coming in this time is more pertinent, mm -hmm. these two hours. Is Kind of office hours. Do you have office hours? Yeah. As a professor, so anybody can come in. Do the do, well, do groups pre come in? Pre-pandemic, 
Yes. Oh, pre-pandemic, of course. Right. Right. But yeah, it used to be open. You could have anybody come in. You could have two or three of them there in the same yeah. time and just have a conversation. Yeah. So it's just interesting that that little footnote added in one Greek manuscript actually kind of explains what's going on. It's the next verse that really strikes you. This continued for two years. Holy smoke. This wasn't just some passing fancy. This was something that continued month after month after month after month. And later, in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, you have Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. Uh, 20, verse 31 says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So he actually adds in the three months earlier in the synagogue, and who knows how other times that he was there, it's approximately three years he was doing this. That's a long time. That's a very long time. And you can almost be guaranteed that near the end of that two to three year period was when he wrote 1 Corinthians. you think about what was happening in first, the letter of 1 Corinthians, he had heard some information. He writes to them. Then when we did 2 Corinthians, he says, this is my third time I'm having to write to you, and I need to come visit. And he leaves. And that's where you find the map, is actually what starts happening once he leaves Ephesus to try to visit the people in Corinth. Uh, at the after the end of Second Corinthians, so this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Again, if you look at that map and you see where Ephesus is located, you could almost make a radius, like a star, coming in all different directions, that it becomes a hub or a, a center point of the entire region. So what was being taught there began to spread. Only modern comparison that I could make was the church that my mom and dad were at for so many years. My dad was the music minister at Waikiki Baptist Church and my mom was the pianist. Volunteer. The volunteer. Oh, 50 years, my dad was never paid. He was banker by day, church musician by night. Mom was always his, uh, his pianist. But at Waikiki Baptist Church, which is... Yeah. And have you been there? No, I've been to Waikiki. You'd be, you know, there, it's the only church in the entire strip. Unless you go further, you can get to the Catholic Church. There is one. There's a Catholic Church. So Waikiki Baptist Church... <laughs> Now, I'm, I was in college when they started there, so I would come back. And it's kind of jarring. At least that was the tradition back when my dad was in charge of running the service. Their pastor was Pastor Jolly. And he had to be Jolly. 
And he was. He was a marvelous person. But instead of having people raise their hands who was visiting, he had, could all the members please stand? <laughs> it was less than 20% of the congregation every single week. It truly was a global ministry. And then they would ask to have people sh one by one, they would start in the front. What state are you from? Or where are you from? What either country or state? And you end up finding there are people who live in the same town, but had never met, met at Waikiki Baptist Church. And then they, it was just this community every week. And of course, as the, uh, uh, you know, as part of that, the congregation sang a welcome song to the visitors. It was part of it every week. It's the same thing. It was so, I look back on it now, it's like, wow, that's the way to do church. You really welcome these people in a unique way, and they'll go home and talk about it which meant the gospel message goes out and out and out. So you look at this and this statement that all the residents of Asia heard about the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, it started to spread like wildfire. Forty years later, Pliny the Elder wrote a letter to Trajan and he wrote of Christianity this, quote, for the contagion of this superstition has not only spread through cities, but also throughout all villages and country places. It was spreading everywhere. Was, was uh, Ephesus also on like the Roman road as well, or is it just a major port city? It was part of the Roman market. Thing. In fact, I, would, I did a little more digging. Because of the problem with the harbor and the silt, it was always filling the harbor. About seven years after this letter was the last time they made a concerted effort to dig it out because it was starting to, basically ships were getting stuck and they were getting frustrated. So they dug it out as much as they could. Then, um, it was 20 years later, Emperor Domitian, he was one of the guys who literally cards clamping down on Christianity. Uh, he basically said, just forget it. Give up on it. And from about 80 AD to 150 AD, the city just, because no ships could get there. And then pretty much it was abandoned and uh, they just moved on. I mean, can you imagine? I can't, it's our Western mentality. You cannot imagine abandoning a massive city. A city that had a, uh, not a Colosseum, what are the words? The half shell? Amphitheater. Hmm? Amphitheater. An amphitheater that sat 20,000 people. So fill the circle, that's 40,000. That's bigger than Talking Stick Arena. For the, for the Phoenix Suns play. All I have to say is, I hope they had really good acoustics. <laughs> Man, if people are, you know, with their candy wrappers and there's 20,000 of them there, I mean, wow. 
But still, this is an amazing city, and they just abandoned it, just walked away. And you can go visit all of that. In fact, it was interesting, that little cave I was telling you about earlier, apparently it's so fragile, you can't go see it now. They have, they won't even let tourists go to it because the, the frescoes on the walls are just too fragile. They know that they'll start falling off if people get in there and mess with them. All right, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now remember, it's God doing it, not Paul. Paul's not the one doing the miracles. That's why it's so extraordinary when you have preachers today, and I'm going to quote one. God has to be given permission to work on this earth on, the beha on behalf of man. Yes, you are in control. So if man has control, who no longer has it? God doesn't have it. When God gave Adam dominion, that meant God no longer had dominion. So God cannot do anything on this earth unless we let him. And the way we let him or give him permission is through prayer. That's downright heresy. And it's taking all the credit for anything good and blaming the devil for everything bad. It, no. You can't do that. And this is a quote from a TV preacher that's out there. That's really frightening, especially when you have passages like this because they take the balance of this passage and twist it. Read on with me. Verse 12. These extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Okay, now I'm just uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know about you, but now we know why you can send $15 to a TV preacher and get a prayer cloth because he's wiped his forehead with it and he's going to mail it to you and now you'll get better. No. The purpose of signs and wonders was to confirm the spiritual authority of Christ in these disciples. Nothing more. And to say that that is carried forward to today, especially this, I don't know. I'm. Steve, I was in Prescott Valley a couple weeks ago. They had a tent set up on the major freeway in you know, yeah. Prescott Valley just before you. Exit Prescott Valley started heading up towards Costco. Right. Prescott. It was like it was uh, a weekend of healings and miracles, kind of like advertised. You wow. Know, on that tent, uh, so some kind of tent show coming through for people to come and get healed. And you, you don't see that very often anymore, but there was in Prescott Valley. And there it is, and it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it, the rest of our passage talks about those who are in that tent. And there were some itinerant Jewish exorcists. This is the only time the word exorcist is used in the New Testament, in case you're wondering. And the Greek literally means to bind by an oath. So one spirit is more powerful than the other, and through an oath you can bind the lesser spirit. So these Jewish, Jewish, 
not pagan, Jewish, exorcist undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had an evil spirit, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So I have to stop there a little quick. I'm going, okay, again, one of those other uncomfortable passages. Um, I read quite a bit on this. In fact, I brought a book that I looked into. Doesn't didn't really address this passage very well, but certainly does address issues called the kingdom of the occult. You've heard of Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cults. This is the second book, and it's all about the occult. Um, I had the privilege of working with them to put this together, and there are 60 pages just on demonic possession, etc. It's a scary book to read. And it was very difficult for the two of them to put it together because it took two and a half years of spiritual warfare and many attempts to squelch the information that came in here. Because there are certain things that you want to quote from the literature, but you get, have to get permission to do so. And the permission was not being granted, no matter how much money you were willing to give them. Because they knew exactly what was going to be done with it. So, again, anytime you start dealing with the dark arts, you have to be really careful. open that door. But here you have religious men, whether they are holy is debatable, but you have those that were practicing this, the dark arts, and they saw the power of the name of Jesus in Paul and went, oh, we can do that too. Um, you know, you can't say that there's magic in those words if they come from someone who is not from God or in Christ. And that's where the danger becomes. Because you have some who will just say, uh, I've been given this gift. Really? Seriously? You have? Well, that's, that's cool. Um, you know? Uh, are you asking for money? Oh, sure. You got you to gotta question it. Because when you get to this section, the seven sons of Sceva, Jewish high priest, not Caiaphas. So this is a high priest from Jerusalem. We don't even know if there was such a title in that area. He may have been self-proclaimed. He may have been the head of lo a local synagogue, for all we know. Excuse me. But the evil spirit that was being cast out answered. Can you imagine their surprise? The Jesus, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I mean, seriously, that's a really funny statement. And I'm just glad I didn't say, who the heck are you? Because that would have been ironic. Um, it's interesting, in the Greek, the Jesus I know and the Paul I recognize or the Paul I know are two different words. 
The Jesus I know is gnosko, which means to know someone experientially, one-on-one, a relationship of some sort. And remember, when let's go way back in some of the other situations in the New Testament where Jesus is confronting demons and they go, we know who you are. Please leave us alone. They knew exactly who he was. In fact, if they were satanic angels, they worshipped the Trinity before they fell. They knew exactly who Jesus was. The word for Paul is epistemi, which means to know someone or know about someone or know them as an acquaintance. So it'd be very different from a, I guess it would be, this might be not exactly accurate, but a familial relationship where you know someone, you, you know them well, and there's another person where you run into periodically or you've heard about them and you know, okay. But these guys, who are you? What do you, what do you think you're doing? Um, I just happened to write this down. I said, does our work for Christ reverberate in the halls of hell? Do they know my name? If there was a situation like that, would they say, Jesus I know, and yes, I've heard of Steve. Um, Who are you? Uh, I'd have to say that it's probably not that going to (laughs) happen. I'm not a Paul. I don't think I am in any way, shape, or form. But isn't that interesting how Paul's work was known among the demons? And the man in whom the evil spirit, who was in the, who had the evil spirit, leapt on them, mastered them, which in the Greek means subdued, and that's a light. Uh, translation the uh, more accurate is that he beat them to a pulp because of what you see the rest of the the sentence comes he mastered them all of them overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded bleeding The Greek word for wounded is traumatizo, where we get our word trauma. <laughs> I mean, it, I'm sorry, it's almost, uh, you know, the movie in the mind starts playing this out. You know, you just, you can almost see it dramatically uh, represented where this, who are you? And then bam, just leaps at them and saying, go away. And they're going, get out, get out, and they can't. They have no power. They thought they did. And isn't that an indication that if you try to, I don't know, manipulate or use the name of Jesus as a, um, I don't know, a vending machine coin, if you put in the right amount of Jesus, you get the right kind of candy bar in the other direction? I mean, it's just not not what's going on here. This is serious stuff. 
And then verse 17, and this incident became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of them who had practiced magic arts brought their books and burned them in the sight of all. There have been many uh, stories over the years of people who have come out of a very non-Christian background or a very worldly background and when they come to faith they really want to rid themselves of that and so they will burn their albums or their books or their materials. Uh, in a recent issue of Christianity Today, the very last article in the magazine is about a New Age best-selling author worldwide. Title of the article is, Please Don't Read My Old Books. She's come to faith. She was making millions of dollars, lived in a mansion in Hawaii. She traveled the world and she realized the whole thing was a lie. After all these years, and she says, I have gotten rid of it all, I, but my publishers won't take my material out of print, they control it. And I'm just saying, I disavow all of that. Please don't read my books. Wow. It says here, they counted the value of these books and magic arts and all of that, came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, May I do some math with you for a second? How many pieces of silver did Judas get? 30. 30. Which was considered a, enough of a sum to justify betraying someone. A piece of silver was one day's wage, a drachma. 50,000 days of work worth was burned by these people. If you just want to make the math simple, if there are 50,000 work days, you can figure that's about 150 years. So take your salary, multiply it by 150 and that's the value of what just got burned in this event. It's not a trifling sum. This is a major move. And if we then see what further happens when we come back to Ephesians <coughs> the week after Easter, uh, you can see this what starts the trouble. And I mean, that's a sacrifice for these people. It's millions of dollars. I mean, I can't imagine if I suddenly decided I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity anymore and I were to burn my library. Hmm? <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, an entire lifetime of collecting some very valuable works. That would be extraordinary decision and not one taken lightly. And it's a major statement we kind of brush this off because we don't really understand the monetary thing here, but when you look at that, 
I just say, take your salary and multiply it by 150. And that's what these people did. In verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Yeah. Is it curious that they didn't decide to sell their books and give the money for a good cause? That was actually brought up by a couple commentators. They were saying, why didn't they just, you know, put it on eBay and then donate it to the, to the cause? But that, that actually says it can be used by someone else. And that made it even more of a sacrifice that they destroyed it so that it could not carry forward by their hand. It would be so easy to say, well, oh, that old, you know, satanic whatever I have, satanic Bible, I should, you know, I, I could probably get 50 bucks for that on eBay. And then I'll donate the money to the church. Well, it's tainted. Because that means someone else now has it. So wouldn't it be better you just Get rid of it completely? I think it's also interesting. It's, it just says some of them. It doesn't say that all of them did that's that. That's a very good point. And, it's, and it's, some were just so convicted, and others, you know, you can see that. That's such a human thing, this reaction. Yeah. Just, there's so much. Because you, you can imagine, there's probably many who came to believe, but they didn't want to get rid of their stuff. Or they didn't think of it. Didn't even or didn't even think of it. Yeah. Or if it happened, they would. They were the ones who put it on eBay. <laughs> I mean, there's different reactions. I would say one is right or wrong, but this is the action that was put in Scripture. This was the response that was put in Scripture. Oh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, for the extraordinary word that you give to us with so many interesting details behind the story as we dig in and we lift up a corner and we lift at that and we just realize the intentionality of your word to give us principles of our Christian life, how we respond to spiritual warfare, how we respond to error that's among us, not with derision or shame, but instead concern and care and kindness to bring people forward to the light. And we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.